Happy Sabbath, Advent Hope. Oh, I'm sure you can do better than that. Happy Sabbath, Advent Hope. It's good to be with you here again. And I emphasize the word again because I, as I was uh, listening to the special music uh, just a few minutes ago, and by the way, thank you for that beautiful song. I was tremendously blessed by that. I began to just reminisce. The last time I was here was four years ago, going on five, I believe. And so it was in 2008, 2008, yes, 2008, I was here. And so it's very encouraging that uh, four years later, you come around and uh, you see familiar faces and you see new faces. And it's just a, an awesome uh, privilege and an experience to be part of a group of young people who are serious about the second coming of Jesus. Amen. And also those who are young at heart too. So may God bless you and may God keep you. Uh, as, as we do our part in this part of the Lord's vineyard to prepare for the soon return of our Savior. Uh, before we begin this afternoon, let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. Great and eternal Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the blessed hope of your soon return. Furthermore, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath. As we study your word, speak to us, guide us, Holy Spirit, teach us, and bring things back to our remembrance, as you have promised. This is our humble prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This weekend, as I was asked to come and speak to Advent Hope again, I began to ponder on my, in my mind, what should I talk about? And so I decided that I'm going to talk about the sanctuary service. And I began last night with uh, something practical about how to have the mind of Christ. In other words, how to have the character of Christ and uh, the, the importance of having the character of Christ. This morning, I would like for us to go to a book that is often referred to as pretty dormant and boring. And that's the book of Leviticus. I must confess with you this morning, as you turn to the book of Leviticus, that when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, I, there was one task I had in mind. I didn't grow up in Adventist, I grew up Methodist. And uh, when I heard the Advent message, I, I also heard that the Adventist people were known as people of the book. Remember that? <laughs> and so I determined in my mind that I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. How many of you had that uh, desire at one point in your life? How many have made that your New Year's resolution? 2012. So I, I had a desire in my mind to study or read the Bible from cover to cover, the book of Genesis to Revelation. And in my reading and in my pondering of Scripture, there were two portions of the Scriptures that I found absolutely boring. As a matter of fact, I began to wonder to myself, why is it even here? The first portion of scripture in my, in my endeavor to, to study or read the book from Genesis to Revelation were the genealogies. How many of you could resonate with me? I mean, when I, became, when I started reading the genealogies, I thought to myself, what's the big deal? So-and-so begat so-and-so. And so-and-so begat so-and-so. And some of these names you couldn't even pronounce or, or, or even say it aloud. And, and, and so I determined in my mind that I'm sure the Bible says that all Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. And that's including the genealogies. And in my, in my studies of the genealogies, I found the beauty of the genealogies is that the genealogies has some messianic meaning. It points to Jesus. It confirms that Jesus was actually a fulfillment of these genealogies. Thus, when we come to the Gospels, the reason why there, there's an end to the genealogies, you have no genealogies after Jesus, is because Jesus had fulfilled the genealogies. Something beautiful in something that's perceived as boring. I remember a friend of mine who's a pastor. He came to me one, t one day and he shared with me, uh, he shared with me a visitation he had. Uh, it was a, um, one of his members uh, was, was, uh, was on his deathbed. And his final wish was for the pastor to come in and, and just be by his bedside and just be there with him as he breathes his last breath. And as the, the, the member was lying there on the bed, my pastor friend came to talk to me and he says, I, this was probably the most weirdest visitation I've ever experienced. Now, as pastors, you know, we have formulated in our minds certain passages of scriptures for certain circumstances. I mean, when someone's about to die, you know, the classic, the classic book and chapter, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that, right? But to his amazement, when he came to the bedside of this dying member, the last request of this dying member was for the pastor to read to him the genealogies. Out of all passages of scripture, somehow this individual found comfort in the genealogies. And so the pastor really couldn't understand, so he, so he turned to the, to the Bible and he began to read and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And with every name that was pronounced, that person lying on a deathbed just, just closed his eyes and just kept reminiscing, kept on saying, mm, mm. <laughs> pastor was confused. How can you find hope and comfort in something so dormant and boring? And so and so beget so and go, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and so the pastor had to, so the pastor had to finally ask him and said, sir, what comfort and hope do you find in the genealogies? To which the man replied to the pastor and he says, if God can remember all these names, I'm sure he must remember my name. Amen. And when the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise, he, pastor, will call me by name. Amen. Whether you can look at it from a theological or messianic standpoint, I'm sure there is comfort and hope in the genealogies. Amen. Something so boring can produce something exciting and comforting. The other portion of scripture in my endeavor to read the Bible from cover to cover that I found absolutely boring was the book of Leviticus. How many of you could resonate? Leviticus. So I had to plow my way through the book of Leviticus. All of this gory blood, killing, flaying, skinning. I mean, this is really hardcore stuff. 
It doesn't just say kill the animal. It actually says wring off its neck. Skin it alive. Take the blood. Put it. I mean, it's gory, detailed stuff. But it is my hope and my desire this evening, this afternoon, and, and, and later on this evening to bring out something beautiful in the book of Leviticus that's often perceived as boring. With that in mind, come with me to the book of Leviticus. There are some things in my study that I found in the book of Leviticus that are interesting facts. First of all, the book of Leviticus has more direct speech from God than any other book in the Bible. There is more direct communication between God and man in the book of Leviticus than any other book. Thus, that probably tells me that if you desire a direct word from God, consider the book of Leviticus. There is more direct speech between God and man in the book of Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. Secondly, in my studies of the book of Leviticus, I found that, that the book of Leviticus is at the heart of the Torah. What did I say? The heart of the Torah. The Torah is simply the five books of the Bible. The five books that make up the foundation of the completeness of the scriptures. Every other book in the Bible borrows its ideas, borrows its language and its, and its, and its uh, concepts from the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. These five books lay the foundation of the entirety of the scriptures. And Leviticus is right there in the heart of the Torah. There are two books before it, and there are two books after it. Right there, smack dab in the Torah, is the book of Leviticus. Furthermore, the heart of the book of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 16, which talks about the atonement. Thus, one can safely conclude that probably the whole entirety of the scriptures stems from the principle or the doctrine of the atonement. And as seven-day Adventist Christians, awaiting the return of our Savior, living in these perilous times, the atonement is a doctrine that we ought to be intimately acquainted with, isn't it? Since October 22nd, 1844, the great high priest, Jesus, stepped into the most holy place. And right now, we are living in the anti-typical day of atonement. So right there, smack dab in the Torah is the book of Leviticus. The heart of the book of Leviticus is Leviticus chapter 16, which refers to the atonement. Interesting facts of the book of Leviticus that brings out the beauty of this once perceived boring book. Come with me to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus, the 8th chapter. I wanted to begin this morning... And if we have time, we'll talk about the offerings. I, I mentioned last night that, that this weekend I want to talk about the five different offerings. There are so many ways you could bring out the sanctuary. You could bring it out from uh, um, the, the salvific part of the sanctuary, the, the prophetic part of the sanctuary. But I want to talk about the five offerings that are mentioned in the sanctuary. But I'm going to begin by the confirmation of, of, of Aaron, the priest, the Levite. What qualified him to be a priest? Why does this have significance for you and I today? The Bible says that we are kings and priests unto God. 
We are kings and priests unto God. There are lessons in the confirmation of Aaron to his priesthood ministry that still apply to you and I today, spiritually speaking. Leviticus chapter 8, beginning with verse 6. Leviticus the 8th chapter, beginning with verse 6. The Bible says, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put upon him the coat and girded him with the girdle and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod upon him. And he girded him with the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. Verse 8, and he put the breastplate upon him also. He put in the breastplate the Urim and the Thummim. And he put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre. Even upon his forefront did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now jump back up to verse 6. The Bible says that Moses brought Aaron and his sons. And what did Moses do? He washed Aaron. Notice who does the washing. Moses does the washing. Now, this washing is a symbolic act. He did it literally, but there are a lot of symbolic meanings. Because we are kings and priests unto God, the Bible teaches us that before Aaron was to begin his ministerial role in the holy place and in the most holy place, it was imperative, even his life depended on it, that he was first to be washed. If he wasn't washed, he was automatically disqualified from being a priest in the sanctuary. One cannot begin their ministerial role interceding and witnessing and ministering for God's people and on their behalf unless they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You have automatically disqualified yourself if you have not had what Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, this washing of regeneration, this washing by the Holy Spirit. This very same concept is amplified in the book of Revelation. This washing before ministerial role. Come with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 5 and verse 6. Notice the sequential order here. Of the prophet John on the Isle of Patmos. He borrows this washing. This washing principle from the sanctuary. Before one can begin their ministerial role. They must first be washed. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 5 it reads. And from Jesus Christ. Who is the faithful witness. And the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and what? Washed. 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This word wash is John borrows it from the sanctuary. The same washing that Moses had to do for Aaron. Then, he, then, then John says, after one has been washed by the blood of the lamb, then what happens? Verse 6. Then he has made us kings and what? Priests unto God and his father. That's sanctuary language. What do you say? Aaron had to wash, be washed before he began his ministerial role in the sanctuary. The lesson for you and I is, have you been washed by the blood of Jesus? Maybe there are some here who are in dire need of this washing. What can wash my sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What do you say? This washing was imperative. Come back to Leviticus chapter 8. Notice the detail here in verse 6. Leviticus chapter 8. And verse 6. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now, to be a priest, the Bible teaches us you had to be between the age of 25 and 50. So these weren't little children. I mean, these were growing men. Uh, when, when, when you were in uh, uh, much older, uh, towards 50, you, you weren't really required to do the, the heavy stuff. It was more given to the, to the young priests. And so, so Aaron and his sons were between the ages, the priests, between 25 and 50. The Bible says here that it was Moses. Who did I say? Moses that had to wash Aaron. The Bible teaches us that the priests were not permitted to wash themselves. Who did the washing? Moses. Thus implying that the priests were forbidden to wash themselves. Not because they had disability reasons. I mean, these were growing men, 25 to 50. But God was trying to teach them a lesson. That, that this kind of purity that comes as a result of washing was something that they themselves could not accomplish. The priests were forbidden to wash themselves, teaching them that this kind of washing, this kind of purity is something they cannot do in their own strength. Someone else must do it for them. This washing that we are all in dire need of, this washing and this purity, this character Cannot be, uh, cannot be attained by might or by power. What do you say? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Ingrained into every fiber and molecule of our body is over 6,000 years of sin. There is nothing good in us to wash ourselves. 
And that's what God was trying to teach the Levites. Moses had to do the washing. The priests were forbidden to wash themselves. Thus, teaching them the lesson that this kind of purity, this kind of righteousness and washing can only be accomplished by someone outside of ourselves. And that's Jesus Christ. What are you saying? Come back to the book of Leviticus. Notice what the Bible says in verses 7 to verse 9. After this washing came the investiture, the confirmation, the clothing of Aaron. Notice we see the same principle in verses 7 to verse 9. The Bible reads, And he put upon him the coat. Who is that he referring to? Again, Aaron was not permitted to even clothe himself. And he put upon him the coat and girded him with the girdle and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod upon him. And he girded upon him the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. And he, Moses, put the breastplate upon him. That's Aaron. And Moses put in the breastplate the Urim and the Thummim. And he put the mitre on his head. Also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as who commanded? As the Lord had commanded. Again, we see, my dear friends, that Aaron could not even clothe himself. This clothing is symbolic of the righteousness of Jesus. At this point of this whole investiture, Aaron must have fought totally helpless and dependent. The man couldn't even wash himself. The man couldn't even clothe himself. At this point, it was the desire of God to make Aaron feel totally dependent and helpless. And there was a purpose for why God desired for Aaron to feel that way. Because that's the exact feeling that we must have if we are to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. We must have a sense of brokenness. We must have a sense of total dependence of God. We must have a sense of complete helplessness. Realizing there is nothing in us that can wash us or clothe us. It was the point and the desire of God to make Aaron totally helpless and dependent on another being. I desire to be clothed by the righteousness of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Aaron must feel totally dependent on his master for this righteousness. Let's go back. To the book of Leviticus. Isn't that beautiful in something, a book so considered so boring? Amen? Amen. Leviticus. Notice what the Bible says. Jump over to verse 22. I find this ritual bizarre. After Aaron was clothed, after Aaron was washed, then comes the ram of consecration. Remember, there is relevance for this for you and I today. We have been called kings and priests unto God. We are 
by the grace of God, the errands of today. What do you say? Leviticus chapter 22, oh, sorry, chapter 8, verses 22 down to 24. The Bible says, And he brought the other ram, and the ram of consecration. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the ram. Verse 23, And he slew it, and Moses took of the blood and put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. Verse 24, the Bible says, And he brought Aaron's sons and Moses put the blood upon the tip of their right ear and upon the thumbs of their right hands and upon the, upon the great toes of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood. Where folks? Upon the altar. Very bizarre ritual, isn't it? How many of you today, before you go to church, would like to have a dabble of lamb's blood on your ear and on your thumb and on your right toe? The Bible teaches us that by applying this blood to the right ear of Aaron symbolized that that particular body or that particular member of the body no longer belongs to Aaron but belongs to God. When you look in the concordance and look up the word ear, it is mentioned approximately over 118 times and many times in the Bible it often refers to give thine ear to my commandments, O Lord. Hearken thine ear unto my words. And it was the desire of God, it was the desire of God for the ear of these priests to hear the commandments of God and not to listen to any evil. That particular body, member of your body, no longer belongs to evil, but belongs to God. Your ears were given to you to hearken to the commandments and the voice of God, not to listen to evil. There are certain things, Advent Hope, that the Bible teaches us from the book of Leviticus that we must shut our ears to. Amen? As I mentioned last night, the battle of the great controversy is the battle of our mind. Who has allegiance over our mind? And Satan will often use our ears as an avenue into our mind. There are certain kinds of music that we shouldn't be listening to. What do you say? Amen. We must also close our ears to gossip and rumors. Amen. For by beholding we become changed. That ear must be consecrated to hear the voice and the commands of the Lord. Amen. Furthermore, the Bible says that his thumb, which is found in the hand, was to be consecrated. We all know in the Bible that our hand is often symbolic of action. What does it symbolize? It is often symbolic for action. All of our acts must be righteous in the sight of God. What do you say? Amen. Furthermore, our feet, our feet, our right toe must be dabbed with the blood of Jesus. 
There are certain places, young people, we shouldn't be going to. There are certain places our feet should not be taking us to. What do you say? We must be about God's business. We must be going about God's work. Kings and priests unto God. Come with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. Once Aaron had been consecrated, once Aaron had been washed, he had been clothed, then the Bible says his right ear had blood, his, his, his right uh, thumb had blood, now his feet was consecrated. Now Aaron was confirmed and qualified to be a priest in the sanctuary. Has your right ear been consecrated? Has your right thumb been consecrated? Are you doing about God's errands with your feet? Have you been washed? This washing of regeneration. Do you feel totally helpless? And dependent, not on your own strength, not in your own power, but in the righteousness of Jesus. Once you have gone through this whole ordeal, and it may be humiliating at times, amen? Just like Aaron must have felt humiliated as a growing man for someone else to wash him. He, the Bible says, you know, Moses had to put the mitre upon his, his forefront. The man couldn't even put his own hat on. Amen? Total dependence on God. Once you have gone through this investiture, this ritual, then the Bible says, you have been made a king and priest unto me. I desire to be a priest for God. How about you? Amen. Consecrate my ear, O Lord. What do you say? Amen. Consecrate my thumb. Consecrate my whole body. Wash me. Cleanse me. Cover me with your righteousness. Is that your desire this morning? Amen. I desire to be a priest for God. Let's bow heads for a word of prayer. Great and everlasting master in heaven. Like Aaron, we desire to be consecrated. Take our ears. May our ears be used to hearken to your commandments and to your voice, not to hearken to anything that's evil. Take our whole action, our works, dear Father. May it be pleasing in your sight. May we, with our feet, may we tread the path of righteousness. May we go about doing your errands. May we be found, dear Father. May our feet take us to the places that are pleasing to you. Wash us, O Father, for there is no good thing in us there is no power in us to even wash ourselves. Today, we come to you as your people, totally helpless, totally dependent for you to cover us and to clothe us with your character as we prepare for your soon return. This is our humble prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Let everybody say, Amen, amen and Amen.